Welcome to Theology on Tape, portable Catholic theology for catechists or Catholics who want to dig deeper. My name is Elizabeth, and I'm here with Shane. Hello. Hi. I need a new intro (laughs) than just saying hello. Uh, This week we're talking about sin and confession. Mm -hmm. What's What's a focused way of looking at sin and confession? Well, it's really, really important. Everything's really important. Well, yeah, that's true. I know I said the Trinity is the most important doctrine. It's all important, but yeah, we're again, we're talking about eternal destiny and confession is an important part. It's a plank of salvation to uh, to get where we need to go. So far too many Catholics most people know this, but Catholics don't go to confession, like, hardly ever. Maybe I should have pulled up the numbers before this. I think but it's like 90-something percent. Yeah, yeah. Of This was a recent survey of, of Catholics who say they go to confession regularly. It's 2%. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so we're going to be going over why it's so important. Yeah, that's right. Um, for our prayer, we have another psalm, Psalm 51. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, before we go into confession, we should really understand what sin is, and the different types of sin, and the, I guess, consequences of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what is sin? Sin, the Bible says, this is 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is the transgression of the law. By that, we mean God's law. Sin is, sin is breaking God's law. And God's law is, in a word, love. Right? The Bible says this in a few places, that the whole law is summed up in the commandment to love. Jesus, of course, famously says that on the whole law hangs two commandments. So we talk about 10 commandments, but first there's the commandment of love, which can further be divided into two commandments of love God and love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And then those two commandments can be further divided into 10 commandments. Oh, okay. So the first three of the 10 commandments deal with our love for God. And the last seven deal with our love for our neighbor. And by the way, I think there's a little bit of numerical significance there that you have three as a number for God, mm-hmm. first three commandments, and seven as a number for your neighbor, seven being a number of completion, the number of creation. So it's sort of like God and creation, three and seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seven days. Seven days, that's it. So... God's law is love. 
sin is the breaking of God's law. So to sin is to is our failure to love. That's one way of categorizing it, one way of thinking about it. But what we really need to remember about God's law, what's important and often gets misunderstood or misrepresented sometimes, is that because God is our creator, sin is never, or the commandments of God are never arbitrary. God is not telling us what to do and what not to do just because he wants to control us or he wants to be in charge. We have to think about the commandments of God as like an instruction manual for something. So when I read the manual to my car, I don't think, oh, who is Ford to tell me how to use my car? No, they made it. Mm -hmm. They know how it's supposed to operate. So this book, these instructions are there to tell me how this will operate at its best. Mm -hmm. That's how we have to think about the commandments of God. That it's not God imposing arbitrary restrictions on us. If God tells us that we need to do something or that we need to not do something, it's for our sake because that's how we're designed to be made. Like you don't want to put water in your gasoline tank. It will it will do damage. It doesn't matter. Like that's why it's there. So sin is a turning away from love. It's a breaking of God's law. And so it does harm to ourselves and to others. We've talked about this before that the sins that we commit, like there could be like if you're stealing something from someone that that can be like a you can see the damage it does to someone or mm-hmm. whatever, but there are there are other like hidden ways of damaging other people and yes, exactly. And does that do damage to our souls or to their souls or yeah, that's well, that's what I want to talk about because we have, especially in our modern world, we have a real tendency to only think about sin or anything is wrong. Like if you just ask somebody on the street, like what makes something wrong? Well, something is wrong if it hurts other people. That's part of our kind of American political philosophy that has sort of crept into our way of thinking about the world in a moral way. It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't hurt anybody. So that's always what we can say. It's like, well, it doesn't hurt anybody because that's the kind of philosophy that we want to live by. Like, well, as long as they're not hurting anybody else, then you know, you're free to do whatever you want. That, if it's not obvious, is not the Bible's position. It's, maybe it is, maybe it's not obvious to people because people, that's really what people believe. They really think that that the only thing that's wrong is causing harm to other people. But that's a very shallow way of thinking about what's right and wrong. And as we as we get further into it, we will see why that's a lacking way of of understanding something. As you were saying, okay, we could use harm as a measuring stick, but what is and isn't harm isn't always clear. So that's why we need a a better metric for what we mean by sin, what we mean by evil. And that's why we had to spend so much time before, if you want to go back to those other episodes where we talked about what is goodness, Mm -hmm. because for something to be good has a very clear objective meaning. Something is good because it fulfills its purpose. It does what it is created and supposed to do. We can multiply the examples (laughs) endlessly (laughs) as as we did in, in those episodes. So that has to be where we begin in talking about what is good and therefore what is wrong. Something is wrong because it contradicts our created purpose. 
And as you're alluding to, when we sin, we do damage, if nothing else, we do damage to our souls. We may, in many circumstances, do damage to our bodies through sin. But if nothing else, we are definitely doing damage to our soul. Because it's not how our soul was meant to operate. God gives us these instructions of how to live with virtue. And every act, here's the important thing, is that every act is either strengthening or weakening our character. So that as we go through life, we have to be mindful of that, of even little things that we do that are wrong. Even if it's little in and of itself, it still has an effect on us and on our souls. So the way the church talks about this is that there are two, we could say, effects of sin. The church uses the language of punishments. So I'll, I'll today probably continue to use the word punishment. But we should remember that God's punishments are not arbitrary. So sometimes for us, when we hear punishment, we think vindictive or arbitrary and imposition of rules and external punishments. But when we say punishments, God's punishments, they are the, they are the effects of our sins. Sin is its own punishment in a way. So what are these two effects of sin or two punishments of sin? The one the church says we could think of uh, as the kind of natural effect of sin. Uh, That's how it damages our character. So we call this um, the temporal punishment, where, as I was saying, every time you do something you're not supposed to do, your character becomes weaker. You become more inclined. It's like habits, right? You become more inclined to do that again or do something else worse because you have been habituating yourself into these bad practices. So that is called the temporal punishment due to sin, where our soul, the way I describe it, it's like the soul kind of becoming curved in on itself. We're meant to be straight. We're meant to be an arrow. We're meant to be open towards God. But when we sin, our soul kind of hunches over and it curves in on itself. And that love that is supposed to be directed towards God and others we turn it around, we curve it in, and we love ourselves first of all. And every time we sin, even in little ways, we are bending that arrow. We're turning the point in on ourselves, and that does real damage. The other effect or the other punishment of sin is what the church calls the eternal punishment. You can tell by that language that this is so temporal, meaning having to do with time. Mm -hmm. The eternal punishment due to sin, is the loss of friendship with God. Our relationship with God becomes broken. We are cut off from God's sort of life. Now, obviously, as we had said before, God is omnipresent. God never never leaves us entirely. That's not what we're saying. But our friendship with God, our relationship with God is broken. And a way of saying that more technically is that charity in the soul, which we receive, for instance, at baptism, these theological virtues that are infused into us, charity in the soul is destroyed. So that indwelling of God, where we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, God is dwelling in us, 
when we commit serious sin, God is forced to flee. And so that relationship with God by the indwelling of his spirit is, is broken. That's the eternal punishment due to sin. And I assume we'd, without charity, we'd go to, we've talked about heaven and hell. Yes. So that's like the judgment. That and that's it. So without, without charity in the heart, we are lost. That's what makes all the difference. So that's the, uh, that's the really serious thing about this is that we have to make sure that we, we keep God in our soul, so to speak, that we keep charity in the heart. Because that, that's the one thing that makes all the difference is that you, you can't die, as we say, in a state of sin. Uh, dying in a state of sin, that's how, that's how people are lost. So that's, that's why it's so important. If you die in a state of mortal sin, is that the, is that the ticket to hell? Yeah, so it's, it's good that you bring that up, this distinction between what we call mortal sin and venial sin. Because mortal sin carries with it both of those punishments. Both the temporal punishment, which is the damage to your character, the curving in of yourself, as well as the destruction of charity. So a mortal sin, and this, by the way, this mortal means deadly. And this comes from uh, the first letter of St. John, where he, he says that not all sin is deadly. So there is deadly sin, but not all sin is deadly. This is something that Protestants often kind of gloss over because, because Catholics are the only ones that make this distinction between mortal, which means deadly sin, and venial sin, which means like forgivable sin. And so a lot of Protestants say, well, the wages of sin is death. And they have this idea that every single sin you could possibly commit will send you to hell. But that's not what John is saying, at least in, in his first letter, that there is, he says, a sin that is not deadly. So a mortal sin, a deadly sin, yes, destroys charity in the heart. It is incompatible with God's presence. So for something to be considered a mortal sin has to meet three requirements. One, it has to be a grave or serious violation of God's law, that law of love that we talked about. So mm -hmm. the church says, if you want to know what, what are the serious commandments of God, it's the Ten Commandments. So if God has explicitly commanded or forbidden you from doing something in the Ten Commandments, that's a grave, that's what we call grave matter. But two other requirements are necessary for it to be a mortal sin. One, it has to be a violation of the Ten Commandments. Two, it has to be done knowingly. And three, it has to be done willingly. And you see in that answer that it's tied directly to the nature of our soul. The soul has, we said, the intellect and the will. Both of those things have to cooperate in the sin for it to be really, truly a mortal sin. Meaning, You're not done by accident. Exactly. It's something that you do intentionally. So it's something that you know that it's wrong and you freely, willingly choose to do it. So mortal sin has to be grave matter, has to be done knowingly, has to be done willingly. If it's not all three of those things, then it would be a venial sin. Mortal sin, we said then, has both the temporal and eternal punishment. So mortal sin destroys charity in the heart. And it also distorts our character. 
venial sin, while it doesn't destroy charity in the heart, like God, God's Holy Spirit doesn't leave us mm-hmm. when we commit these venial sins, but even those venial sins, they still carry a temporal punishment. And it makes sense why we would say that. So this is what the catechism will say. Uh, venial sin wounds charity doesn't destroy it but it does wound it yeah and it makes sense why we would say something like that because as we said if if you do something even accidentally even if it's a habit say that you're trying to stop even when you do it unintentionally it's still then reinforcing that habit so you have still done some damage to yourself even if it's not on the level of a mortal sin and that's where something like penance will come in is that we have these temporal effects of sin, these bad habits. And so the church recommends to us penance, which is to do good things like prayer or fasting or almsgiving. We do these good things, these acts of penance to help straighten things out that our venial sins have bent. Okay. Through venial sin, our charity is wounded and through mortal sin, our charity is lost. Yeah, that's right. And how do we get charity back it's interesting to note it's a great question it's interesting to note that first that we receive that gift of charity in the sacrament of baptism because i don't know that we've said that before but it's in baptism that we receive the gift of the holy spirit the indwelling of the holy spirit at baptism that's where as we say we become adopted as children of god we participate in the divine life so baptism is where that virtue that gift of god's indwelling is first infused into our souls and presumably stays there until we are of an age where we can commit mortal sin and if we commit mortal sin which we do then it is lost it's destroyed now remember all of the work of your character is not destroyed just by one act So even one sin, even a mortal sin, while it destroys charity in the heart, the work that you've done in terms of of creating and shaping your character, that doesn't change by just one good or bad act. Now, it's enough for you to lose your salvation because you have to have that connection with God in order to have eternal life. This is why the Bible makes such a big deal about the fact that we're not saved by our good works. It doesn't matter how good your character is if you don't have charity in in your soul. That gift of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that, you've got nothing. But people need to remember that the work that you do in creating good habits and forming your character, don't think that just because when you commit one mortal sin that everything is lost. I mean, you are in that moment in in a state of sin, And that needs to be rectified. And we'll talk about how to do that in just a second. But I want to just clarify that point that the work of your character is ongoing. So we have to be mindful of that. So that then when charity is restored, which is what happens in the sacrament of confession, obviously, that's Mm -hmm. where we're going. When that gift of charity is restored, the work continues of developing character. So I really want people to get that sense of this is a process. This is an ongoing thing. And while charity is a kind of light switch, either you have it or you don't, 
it's an on-off kind of thing. So, I mean, you we have to avoid mortal sin at all costs for the sake of our eternal life. But I don't want people to be overwhelmed with discouragement by their sins because, again, it all adds up. We are working on our characters as a whole. So if you commit mortal sin, you lose that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, get back to confession as soon as you can, and that will restore that, replenish your life, and you get back to work uh, forming and shaping your character. All right, let's talk about confession then. Yes, let's get to it. Confession is a sacrament, meaning it is instituted by the Lord Jesus himself. We see this in John chapter 20, by the way, where Jesus says to his apostles on Easter Sunday, he says, as the Lord has, or as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. So he gives there on Easter Sunday to his apostles and to their successors this power to hear confession and to absolve sin. So confession has four parts. The first is the confession itself. That's what we do. We come and confess our sins. And the catechism says that we must confess all mortal sin mm -hmm. that has not yet been confessed. So since the time of your last confession or any, any unconfessed mortal sin from your past life has to be brought to confession. If you retain or withhold a mortal sin in confession, it invalidates the whole thing. So you can't, if you've got, if you've got three things that you need to confess and you go in and confess two of them, but you're a little embarrassed to share that third one, you have not made a good confession and you don't receive the graces of the sacrament. So you've got to make a full confession. And that full confession includes naming your sins with specificity. Now, this doesn't mean going in there and telling long stories about, well, I was talking to so-and-so and this happened and here's why. And because that's our tendency. I think people fall into that because they don't want to go to the priest and just say, I did this. Mm -hmm. They want to explain, well, yeah, but really it was like this and this person did this first and whatever. None of that matters. Get to the point. We're not confessing other people's sins. Confess your sins. Just name it. Name what it is and only give the context that is necessary that would affect the gravity of the sin. So if I say that I lied, that's a sin. That's a mortal sin. But if I have lied to my parents, that is an even more serious sin. So confess the sin in name, or we say in kind, what kind of sin did you commit? And also in number. And this is where people, I always get kind of weird looks. Wow, how many, I'm supposed to count how many times I've done something? Well, for one, if you're going to confession often enough, that should be manageable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you haven't been to confession in 10, 20, 30 years, which is true for many people, then you can summarize and say, I committed this sin once. Dozens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, whatever the case may be. But we, again, there's a difference between, oh, I did this thing once or I've been doing this thing every day for the last 10 years. That's why we have to confess in number and in kind, because those things affect the kind of sin that we're confessing. And the priest needs to hear that. Okay, so that's the first part. That's the first part. That's confession. The second part is contrition. So you have to make a good confession, but then you also have to be contrite. 
That means being sorry for your sins. This is another common misunderstanding. People have this attitude that they think, oh, as long as I go to confession and I just, as long as I tell the priest what I did, then I get forgiveness. Everything's fine. It's not that simple. You have to actually have the intention to not do that anymore. So if you go into the confessional fully intending to go back out in the future and commit the same sin, you're not making a good, a good confession and you don't receive the grace of the sacrament. That's different than, say, going into the confessional and knowing yourself and knowing that you will commit this sin again just by your own sort of moral weakness. There's a difference between that and having no intention to reform. So we have to go into the confessional with contrition, being truly sorry for our sins and truly having a desire uh, to, to reform and to change our life. And the priest, this is something that a lot of people don't know. The priest in the confessional has the right to withhold absolution. We'll talk about absolution next. But the grace of the sacrament, if you go into the confessional, you make your confession, and if the priest can tell that you do not intend to reform your life, that you're not contrite, the priest can just dismiss you. The priest doesn't have to give you absolution. And a lot of people don't realize that. They think it's like kind of a guaranteed thing. And certainly this, I mean, very rarely happens. But, I mean, here would be a concrete example. Two unmarried people who are living together who want to confess the sin of fornication. A good priest, a faithful priest, would say in that situation that you have to rectify that situation before you can receive absolution. Because you're living your life in such a way that you are not indicating any intention for reform. You're fully planning on, on doing that again. You're not, as we say, avoiding the near occasion of sin. So if you're living in such a way that is intrinsically sinful, you got to get out of that situation before you can make a good confession. What's the difference between um, contrition and attrition before we go to absolution? Sometimes we hear this term attrition versus contrition. It's another way of talking about a distinction that the church makes between perfect and imperfect contrition. So perfect contrition is when we are sorry for our sins because of our love for God. That's perfect contrition. Imperfect contrition, also called attrition, is when we are sorry for our sins because of its effects. For instance, that we fear hell, that we desire heaven, or any other reason like that in between. That's why in the typical act of contrition, at least the one that I use, we say, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee, my God, and I detest all my sins because of thy just punishments, but most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who art all good and deserving of all my love. So you can see there, there's two different reasons why we're sorry. I'm sorry for my sins because of God's punishments, but I'm also sorry because I've offended God who I love. And we want to move towards perfect contrition. Is having um, just simply like the imperfect contrition, does that also negate the confession? No, that's great. It's a great question. Imperfect contrition is sufficient for a good confession. So if it's just fear of hell that's driving you to the confessional, it's good enough. At least you're there. We've got 
the four parts of confession. First one was confession. Second mm-hmm. one was contrition. Third one. Third is absolution. This is what the priest does. So the confession, the contrition, that's what we bring. The priest gives absolution. And just like in the sacrament of the Eucharist, the words are the most important thing. The words are the form of the sacrament. So just as when the priest holds the host in his hand and he says, this is my body, he is speaking in persona Christi. He's speaking in the person of Christ. So when he when the priest says, this is my body, that is Jesus speaking through the priest. Similarly, in confession, the priest shifts his language to the first person. And this is why he says, I absolve you from your sins. That I is not Father John or Father Bob or whoever. I absolve you of your sins are words spoken in persona Christi. That's the heart of the sacrament right there. That's where the grace happens is in speaking those words. So in the same way in the transubstantiation of the Eucharist happens when the priest speaks those words, your absolution occurs when the priest says, I absolve you of your sins. Those are the words of the sacrament. Everything he says before that, after that, the priest has the the right to change it. But this is important for people to know. If the priest in the confessional, if your priest says something like, God forgives you from your sins, or God forgives you of your sins, you need to say, excuse me, Father. (laughs) (laughs) You know, use the traditional formula. I absolve you from your sins. Those are the six words that you need to hear. Or in Latin, ego te absolvo, right? I absolve you. That's what you need to hear. I guess it would help if you did a, if you went into the confessional formally and did the, like the top of the confessional, like forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been just creating the process like as formal as you can do. Yeah, that's honestly... And we didn't even touch on that, you know, the beginning. That's another part of the thing is is to, it's not a necessary component of it, but the way like confessing in number and kind, that's necessary. But another thing that the priest will, should want to know is how long has it been since your last confession? The other things that could affect your, your uh, confession would be your state of life. I'm married, I'm single or whatever. That can have an effect on, on the implications of, of what you're confessing. But yeah, all of that being said, that's why I really prefer, and I think it's important for confessions to be maybe a little more formal by the book. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of that's my personality, but... It's also just been like dramatized, like the way we've seen it in movies. Like it's just, you cut to a person in a confessional yeah. and it's, they're telling it's a therapy session and the father just like, okay, my child, okay, my child. Mm-hmm. How many times have we seen that? Like I can think of like 70s movies. Yes, and... exactly. So we, yeah, the confessional is not a place to go in there and chat. Sometimes, and I don't know, a lot of us have had this experience, but you're waiting in line for confession and somebody's in there for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. There's no, unless, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's no reason for that. If you've got that, if you need an appointment with the priest, make an appointment with the priest. But even if you're making, I mean, my goodness, but you've made a general confession. Yeah. A general confession is when you confess all of the sins of your past life. I, of course, had to do that coming into the church because I was baptized as a Protestant when I was 12. And I came into the church at 
what, 30. So I had all my sins to confess from 12 to 30. And it doesn't take that long. I mean, sure, there's a lot to confess, but if you get to the point, I'm not telling my biography. I'm just naming my sins in number and kind. Writing it down. Of course, writing it down, that helps. But yeah, just just cut the cut the chit chat. <laughs> Maybe that's a little harsh, but I, well, because okay. To be fair, to be fair, it's really helpful when the priest gives you a little bit of feedback. I think we all like that mm-hmm. when the priest is actually listening to what you're saying and gives you uh, some encouragement or maybe some advice of 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 what to do and how to better live your life. That's great. That's great. But again, the the twenty minute stuff. I don't know what's going on in there in those 20-minute confessions because I've never been in one. So I don't know if it's the priest or the the the, the confessee or the confessor. But uh, I just name your sins and number in kind. And uh, that's, that's what you're there for. Okay. <laughs> so that's confession, contrition. Absolution. Absolution. And the last one, you know what it is? Penance. Penance. Okay, so the priest will assign you some penance to carry out after you leave the confessional. Now, again, because it's one of these four essential parts of the sacrament, if you deliberately don't do your penance, you don't receive the grace of the sacrament. Your confession is invalidated if you deliberately say, no, that's not a good penance. It's too hard. It's too easy. Either way, if you don't do it intentionally... If you forget, that's one thing, but you don't have any reason to forget. Just just do it right then and there. Right then and there. What if you walk away? Yeah, I understand. We can't always... And sometimes the priest will give you penance of like, you know, take somebody out to dinner or something like that. I don't know. I got that as a, as a penance once. But Oh, wow. Um, that's a good one. Well, maybe it was. It was like do something nice for somebody. So maybe I just thought like I'll buy somebody lunch. Um, I've gotten a general one of just like pray. So... <laughs> But see, that's another good example where I think the the penance needs to be specific because you have an obligation to carry it out. So if it's pray, what do I pray? Like you, ha- you it needs to be finite. Mm, okay. uh, so that penance is something that you have to carry out. Now, is that you earning your forgiveness? No. What is it doing? But this is addressing both components of the sin. The eternal punishment or the eternal consequences, the destruction of charity, is restored by the words of absolution. That's a free gift, a grace from God. But the damage that's done to your character still needs to be restored. So remember, mortal sin carries with it both of those effects. So in order to offset or to kind of rectify the damage that we've done to our souls by our sins, we do acts of penance, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, to set things right and to help continue the process of purification. Because even if we are forgiven, our character still remains the way it is. That's not magic. That takes time and it takes effort. And that's what penance is there for, is to help us begin that process of straightening out our lives. Gotta go confess. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in reality, that is the takeaway, is go to confession. Go to confession as often as you need to. Make a good examination of conscience. In the coming weeks, we're going to go through each of the Ten Commandments and talk about what are the sins that are associated with these commandments. But go to confession. Go regularly. 
I would say as a good rule of thumb, go at least once a month. Even if there's not some one huge thing, you just go as a kind of maintenance. Um, so you confess all your mortal sins are necessary to confess, but confessing venial sins is also acceptable and, and good and helpful. Because a lot of times we, I think, don't even maybe know if, does this really, is this a really a mortal sin or is this a venial sin? I say err on the side of caution. If it's something is on your conscience, if something is on your heart, take it to confession as soon as possible. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We try to cover as much as we could on one episode about sin and confession. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out at theologyontape at gmail.com and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and share and rate the show. That'd be great. And thank you for listening. The mascot got ejected. It was a Dodgers game. Yeah, Tommy Lasorda. Phil the Fanatic. That's like a big thing, right? so funny because he's really annoying anyway. I think it's funny that when it goes, like, when you get past the ninth inning that that he puts pajamas on. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a nice touch. So he's out there, like, trying to sleep on top of the dugout. (laughs) 